So it comes to this time, at this place, the 16th of August 2008, 5.30pm in the afternoon of Beijing. A time and a date that will be forever etched on the souls and the life of all of these crews. None less so than Great Britain in lane number four. Tom James new into the boat this year. Steve Williams, cool, calm customer, makes the calls. Peter Reed, Andy Hodge. We found ourselves maybe in third or fourth position at halfway with a couple of crews maybe a half a length or three quarters of length in front of us. We were on the back foot. It needs a huge, huge push for the British crew to move from silver into the gold medal position. Seconds were ticking away and we were taking more and more strokes, not really making up any ground. And by that stage, it's, that was for one stroke, I think, I just, uh, I remember thinking this, this isn't looking good anymore. And I, I punished myself for thinking that. Whatever you're doing, wherever you are, scream and shout at the TV. The British are coming! The British are coming! If we'd have lost that call, there's no way we could have put a finish together like that. Inside, 100 now, and the British look right! We're gonna get it! We're gonna get it! They're through! They're through! Gold medal! Great Britain! Wonderfully done! After racing internationally for a number of years and competing at the Rio Olympics, we realized that each athlete has an epic story and a journey behind every performance, and there's so much more to the Olympics than just that final race. We know that the passion we have for sport is shared by thousands of others around the world, and we want to bring these stories to you. On the Row Show, we have a look behind the scenes to understand the journey each athlete has taken to get to the Olympics. We get into the years of work and dedication and the hardships an athlete has to endure, to have a chance of standing on the greatest sporting stage in the world and a chance for glory. Welcome to The Row Show. We are your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jay Green. This is a podcast where we're going to be going into everything related to sport and performance and we're also going to talk a bit about rowing. South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. My passion winning to be the best. Being the best is something we strive for. Sacrifice, crucial roles, high fit. Compassion, great. Passion, fiction, gold, ultimate gold. Glory, relentless training, pain. Pain. <laughs> just before we get uh, going, a shout out to Just Rowing, their Instagram's most successful rowing page, and uh, bring such epic content to the rowing community. Keep a lookout for some epic stuff coming from them in the future. That's Just Rowing on Instagram. This weekend uh, marks a kickoff of the 2018 rowing season. We're pretty excited as it's the first real peek at uh, what the season holds and which crews have done the best preseason work. We're really excited to see a couple of crews um, on the weekend. Even with the notable exceptions of Australia, New Zealand and Italy, this is still going to be an epic first regatta and there's an un- uncommonly huge amount of entries into the events on offer this weekend. Um, for us, the Sinkovich brothers and the men's pair are definitely going to be ones to look out for and see if they can build on a strong performance from last year. Yeah, I thought uh, that they they got progressively better and better through the season last year. I mean, they really started off rowing the pair very much like the double and by the end of, of that World Champs they were they were rowing the pair really nicely and they just had that monster sprint from the Italians. So I'm sure they're gonna come back even hungrier than, than last year and it's gonna be that's gonna be a good one to see how they start the season off. Yes, and then in the men's eight we have uh, G B putting all their top dogs um, in there, which is going to be really cool to see and, and check if there's gonna be another big rivalry between them and Germany who are the world world reigning 
uh, record holders and world champions. So really excited to see um, how the eight pans out this weekend. Yeah, and we also have uh, Max Planner from the, the German 8. He's going to be racing there in the three seats. So he's uh, a guest on our, one of our earlier episodes. So go listen to it and, and hear how the German 8 trains to, to see how they're going to race this weekend. And then on the women's side, we're really excited to see the women's lightweight double. The only Olympic event open to lightweight women. So it's usually extremely competitive across all competitions. And... We see the Netherlands lighty double comprising Ilse Paulus, who is the Olympic champion from 2016, and then um, second place at world champs, Marijke Kayser, who's the under-23 world champion, and, and to see how she she goes in her debut season in the lighty women's double. Yeah, so Ilse, uh, she took a year off last year to, to just uh, rest and uh, get the rest of her life back on track, I'm sure, and now she's back and and back into the the lighty double so those two pairing up are going to be uh, a really a really quick crew and we're excited to see them also from the south african team we have kirsten mccann who's world champion in the lightweight uh, women's single and nicole van veik who uh, raced marika kaiser in the um in the single at under 23s last year and finished uh, third place so those two pairing up that's the first time we've seen that combination uh, race at a world cup uh, series so that's going to be quite exciting to see and i think that's uh, going to be a good dice yes and then on the south africans we really really excited to see how the rest of our south african team does over there we don't usually uh, send crews to the first world cup but but this year we're changing it up and sending um quite a quite a big team over there quite interesting to see how they they end up otherwise uh keep a lookout for next week we are going to explore the results from this world cup and, and get go into some depth on the nodal performances um, of this weekend yeah i'm going to try and uh, give it a little bit of a twist keep it interesting and and keep it uh, entertaining so make sure that you guys have a look out for that it's going to be very cool yeah so talking about world cups our guest today is ranked second on the all-time medal table for world cups today we chat to legend and british athlete pete reed i'm sure most of you know how successful pete is but uh, here's a quick recap of the impressive results that he has over some of the highlights of his career Pete started rowing when he was part of the Royal Navy, when he jumped in on the Erg as part of some military training and thumped everyone. So that was when he, we started, uh, he started thinking that the, the rowing thing could work and he got in the boat and that was in 2002. He was 18 at the time. The rowing bug really bit him in 2004 when Jürgen Krobler, the British head coach, invited him to the Seville training camp where he got to learn from some legends like Matt Pinson and James Cracknell. He then went on to make his debut in the British senior team in 2005, where he raced in the men's four. Um, this continued, and after a string of quality performances, he became Olympic champion in the Coxless Four at the Beijing Olympics in an epic race against the Aussies. Over the next few years, Pete Reed and Andrew Triggs-Hodge then rode in the men's pair. They showed real speed, but were always matched by the legend Kiwi pair. These two titans went head-to-head over the next few years, pushing the boundaries of what the pair is really capable of. After a string of silvers, Pete and Hodge got back into the men's four where they showed their skills smashing the field at the London 2012 Olympics. Pete Reed now has his second Olympic gold. After London, Pete then saw himself as the core of the new British men's eight, which went on to win uh, every world championships of the Olympiad, ending with a gold medal in Rio, arguably his most dominant performance and his third consecutive Olympic gold medal. There are a lot more epic races in between, but that's all you need to know for for now. Um, So let's get into this inspiring chat with Pete Reed. 
um, and enjoy the episode. Yeah, and just a reminder to share the show and let your mates know about it. It's really helping us to grow, and the more we grow, the more great content we can uh, bring to you guys with epic interviews, with epic athletes. So, yeah, go share the show. But for now, enjoy the show. How's it going, Pete? Hey, Lawrence. Hi, buddy. Nice to connect. How are you doing? Morning. Very well, thanks. You okay? Yeah, Yeah, going very, very well. Good, good. Is it more than how many people we've got? There's two, just the two, two of us. Of us. Nice. Uh, the other voice is Jake. We uh, going? Yeah, thanks very much for your interest, guys. It's really nice. Yeah, yeah and uh, and uh, thanks for for having for coming on the show. Mm. Pleasure. Great stuff. So, Pete, just to start off, could you just introduce yourself to the listeners out there and just give a quick description of your career as a rower? Yeah, sure. Um, so, hi everyone. I'm Pete Reed. I've recently retired from international rowing, and I was with the British team for three Olympiads, uh, and in that time won three Olympic gold medals in uh, the Coxless Four in Beijing, and then the Coxless Four in London, and the eight in Rio. All right, tops. Um, Pete, so the first the first question from our side, um, we would just like to find out a bit more about you joining the Navy. Um, when you were 18, fresh out of school, because I mean, it's it's quite apparent that the Navy has been such an integral part of your career. So we're really interested in just how that journey started through the Navy. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for asking about that. The Navy, yeah, absolutely key uh, to my career because I uh, was actually a fairly poor sportsman at school. Um, I played a bit of rugby and. Uh, I played a bit of basketball, I was terrible at football, I was never very good at those sports to be honest and uh, after school I joined the Navy um, as an engineering officer so I went to Dartmouth, went to the training school and and started to learn a bit more about discipline and a bit about determination and dedication and teamwork and uh, started to get quite fit as well because they give you a good beasting when you're in training and part of that fitness training was using the ergo for the first time and uh, I was at sea in the Persian Gulf, it's called the Gulf now actually, uh, and used the rowing machine over fleet-wide fitness tests, which was just a 1K, but I'd never sat on the machine before, and the PTI just said, goes as hard as you can, as fast as you can, um, it was nearly 50 degrees on the upper deck, and uh, I didn't know what I was doing, but I remember seeing some 120s and 122s, and then that quickly turned into 155s by the end, uh, as I had no idea what had hit me, but ended up with a 305. Um, and the captain of the ship said later on, I, I had the fastest time in the fleet that year, uh, and the captain said, maybe when you go to university next year, you should try rowing. Um, so I think the Navy was important because it, it taught me about fitness. It taught me about all those skill sets that I developed there are the same ones that all of the sportsmen use, especially rowers. You know, rowers have to be resilient. They have to be uh, very good in teams. They have to be good at setting targets. They have to be very disciplined and determined. And those are all things that I, I developed in the Navy. Um, so that's that's how I got started. And, and then, of course, the support from the Navy. It's like having the world's best sponsor throughout my whole career. And that just doesn't happen anymore, especially you know, since 2008, 2009, it's very, very hard for athletes to pick up sponsors, um, and 
you know, all, all credit to the Navy for backing me at the start, taking a risk with me and, and, and supporting me through my career and then being there to catch me uh, now I've come out of this side as well. Yeah, because I think it's so crucial, especially rowing, it's like uh, it's, it takes up so much time and so much dedication that you need to, you need to have uh, people around you that are, are prepared to, to back you over a long period. So that's, uh, that's really cool that they, that they were there the whole way along. And it's really yeah. funny that uh, that you 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 died on the ergo in that first time because I don't think there's a single person in the world that gets on to do a, a max ergo piece and starts with an even split. Yeah, that's that comes yeah. with maturity. Yeah, it does, uh, and and you know we all learn that the hard way. Um, and ergo is just well the nature of any of these training, but there's nothing quite like the row machine. You <laughs> feels it feels easy. Anyone can do ten strokes. And a few people can do 30 strokes and barely anyone can do 200 strokes. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's really, really hard. Yeah. Um, so we all, we all learn that. We all know what it feels like. And when I say I died on the ergo, every rower out there knows exactly what I mean <laughs> as well. Because it doesn't matter what the numbers are, your max is your max. And um, it doesn't matter if you're setting world records or you're trying to break eight minutes for the first time you know how it feels yeah and uh, and yeah and as you get fitter and better it just gets uh, it gets harder and harder so it's um yeah. it's it's no difference between the the novices and the the professionals then uh so then after that you you started rowing a little bit more and you went to to oxford and you you raced for the the oxford cambridge boat race and you started uh, doing some some stuff in the in the in the GB team, so talk us about that transition into into the elite elite sport. Uh, okay, yeah, it was it was fairly swift. So I I have to mention the University of the West of England as well because that's the first university I went to to do my bachelor's in okay. um, mechanical engineering. Uh, that's where I started rowing in my second year. You know, joined the club and I actually found that I was good at the sport for the first time. Really enjoyed it. I had a, a great group of mates down there. Um, the first year was really social, but uh, getting stuck into the water, and uh, I, I progressed really quickly. I was always, because I was big and strong, um, I was always rowing with the better people, so very quickly I was in the senior eight, rowing from experience, um, learning from experienced schoolboy rowers, um, and picked up by uh, my coach Fred, who, Fred Smallbone, he was a Olympic silver medalist um, in the men's eights from uh, the previous generation, but suddenly had a coach who was well connected and knew what he was doing, and um, and really backed me and pushed me on. And so, the stepping stones from when I started in September 2001 to 2002, we qualified for Henley. 2003, I was racing at the under 23s, um, and then got into Oxford to do a masters. Uh, and then I was rowing with a next jump up of. Uh, quality of athletes for um, for Oxford in the boat race, and that was again some some huge experiences there, which I drew on throughout my whole career, racing against Cambridge, um, losing in 2004, which was very valuable, um, despite it hurting, and then uh, winning with um, meeting Hodgie, winning with that that crew in 2005, which was packed with outstanding talent, um, amazing guys, and and learnt a lot, and it was. It was a very short period of time, maybe three years, where I was um, racing with the very best that the world had to offer, uh, racing with them, you know, um, and 
uh, got selected into Jurgen's Coxless Four, and, and then we just started winning things, and everything seemed easy. Um, and yeah, the first world title was in 2005 in Giffy. I, I just couldn't believe how quickly things had happened. Um, where I was, what I was doing, who with. Uh, there were guys that I'd read about in papers uh, while I was on my little ergo on uh, in a tiny little converted bike shed um, back in Bristol doing my um, long rows, trying to train and reading about people like Stevie Williams, Alex Partridge, Andy Hodge. And then I was suddenly rowing with them a couple of years later. Yeah, I mean, your your improvement curve is exponential there. I mean, you just, you start rowing and then straight away you, you're going off to the under-23 world champs and just that that learning curve must have been uh, crazy. When did that bug of the, the Olympics bite you? Where did you, when, when did you start thinking that, okay, we can actually take the rowing thing uh, quite far? Uh, actually, not for a long time. I um, Rowing wasn't on my radar at all. Before before I started doing it, I mean, I, I I knew who Steve Redgrave was, but because he's a household name in this country, but I didn't I didn't ever watch rowing. I didn't get it, um, and I guess in, in two thousand and five, when we won our first World Cup in Dorney, I went home to my uh, to my flatmates in Oxford who were rowers as well. We'd just been on the team together at Oxford, and um, and they said, "Mate, you should be thinking about the Olympics." And I said, "No, come on." No, 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 no. Um, I'm just happy with what I'm doing. I've got work to do. Let's just uh, get this, enjoy that first World Cup win. And that was the first time someone had mentioned the Olympics to me. So that must have been July 2005 or June 2005, something like that. Yeah. So, um, Peter, I wanted to ask you. We take. I'm just taking a little bit, a little bit back. Um, I saw an interview with you. Um, where you said you went on the 2004 Silveretta camp. Um, talk to us a bit about that experience and also a little bit about, you know, what your place was on that camp. Were you um, were you ever in the contention of going to the 2004 games or was it more of like a development thing? Because it must have been crazy training with a lot of the senior guys like Pinsent and um, James Cracknell. Yeah, of course. Uh, well, thanks, thanks for looking that up. Um, you guys have done a lot of research. Not many people know that I was on that camp. Um, so, uh, Jurgen likes big guys, and and throughout my time as one of the seniors in the in the senior team, I've seen young people with no experience who are just enormous come in and just to see how we train. And that's exactly where I was in two thousand and four. So, I'd race the boat race. Um, I had a big ergo. Uh, Dave Livingston and I, um, my teammate from Oxford, we came sixth in final trials in Olympic year, which from nowhere and complete unknowns to get in the A final, that's not bad going. Um, and then Jürgen invited me out to Silvretta. So I, I wasn't I wasn't being trialed for a crew. You know, I thought there was an outside chance because I'd come to final trials, but realistically knowing what now, there was no chance. Um my first real thing is was I got a call one day when I was at Oxford from Jürgen and he said can you come down to Henley to row in the four and I just assumed he meant the Cox, the Cox four but um, Ed Coke was ill so he needed a bow sider to sub in with uh, Pinson, Stevie Williams and James Cracknell to do 20k in the morning um, so I got down there and I was just like a, a pinch hit just absolutely as hard as I could possibly be sitting in the three seat behind Matt so I was just subbing in but um 
it was a huge experience for me and then went from there to Silbretta and I was really a spare. I didn't have any jobs to do. I did as much training as I the whole point was and, and I didn't know this at the time but Jürgen was just showing me what it takes and to, to train to lift weights with uh, massive experience um, it was it was really eye-opening and very valuable to me for the following year so I was kind of disappointed not going to the Olympics because of course I had huge ambitions and, and wanted all these things and I was a young guy and dreamt and, and hoped but it was never ever on the cards and, and that, you know, I, I've got no problem with that at all. It was just a, a, a great learning experience, and I wouldn't have had it any other way. You know, I, w- I wouldn't have... Uh, it, it was too valuable an experience to miss just because of pride of not going to the Olympics. So, um, yeah, very, very savvy, and Jürgen still does it now. Yeah, so there's uh, there's two two really cool parts that I like that, that you've spoken about there. The one is, is getting in the boat with the, the older guys when you're quite young just to give you that experience and then the other one is having a few hard uh, hard lessons learned so like the the loss in the first uh, Oxford crew and then not going to the games and then that's uh, that's a common theme that comes up when you chat to people about just getting those hard lessons early causes you to just uh, like sort of hone your your ideas for the next few years and really make sure that you you get it right the next time yeah um that's really well put from you, um, and it's a, a theme I've noticed from some of the best athletes as well. Uh, I, I hadn't won a race. I'm pretty sure I hadn't won a race before I won the boat race in 2005. Not a regatta, anyway. Um, and it, it takes a, a long time. You know, you need to learn where you are and learn what loss feels like. And um, same same as in life. You know, you need to have these hard knocks to realize where you are what it takes to get rid of any ego to realize that you can't just get a seat in the boat because somebody else wants it as well um so you're gonna have to work for it and be better than that person and life is uh, like rowing very very competitive yeah and as you get to the the top of rowing the margins are so small and the the actual work it gets becomes so much harder so if you've been riding on some natural talent early on then you you don't have that huge drive later on i think yeah, that's right. Uh, because if you can guarantee, the further you get go, uh, you'll just be surrounded by people who are as talented or more talented than you, and it it comes down to how hard you prepare to work. Always, always. Um, yeah, talent, talent will. It's important, of course, but it'll only get you so far. And I was never, I was never particularly the most talented athlete. Never the best rower in the boat ever, actually. But um, always a very hard worker, uh, and always. Uh, I think wrongly at times put rowing first um, but it, it served me well in the sport uh, and that the, the other experience that you mentioned about rowing with those big guys um, it, it was awesome and I've got to know uh, those three guys in particular so Matt, Matt Vincent, James Gretton and Stevie Williams I've got to know them well over the last few years and none of them remember that none of them remember me coming up <laughs> <laughs> Which is which is awesome. But yeah, I, I never forget it. You know, it's uh, it was a big time for my career, and, and for them it was just another twenty k outing. And Ed was ill, and someone came in so they could get the mileage done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's great. It's quite funny how those things work out. Um, but so so Pete, we've got to move forward a little bit. So you 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 got into the the men's four, the flagship boat for Britain, and then you guys had quite a long streak of winning goals um some someone could say it's almost a perfect start to your elite career 
But then in 2007, it must have been a bit of a tough year because you guys were, had a good streak and then at Lucerne, you guys had your first loss. And then considering that it was a year before the Olympics, it must have been quite a hard season beforehand. But in, tell us how that could have set you guys up for later Olympic success. Cool, yeah. Um, I think it was really important for us. So um, I think that's 2005 and 2006 of winning everything. And actually starting 2007 well as well, it, it, it doesn't matter who you are, complacency starts to set in a little bit and you think, you know, this is great. We were winning races by, uh, you know, before we even turned up in 2005, 2006. We had, we had a length lead after 250 meters in Munich in 2005, I think, or 2006. And um, it, it was just monstrous. And um, other people catch up. Sport moves on. The opposition learn, learn what to do. And actually, the rest of the world aren't so well funded as the British team. I mean, it's changing a little bit now. Um, but generally, you get nations who are extremely talented, like Italy, for example, where they come back after the Olympics and you know they've they're all studying, they're all working. Two thousand, so the post-Olympic year isn't such a big one for them. And again, the, the year after that's not so big. It really starts gearing up in that Olympic qualification year, and that's when people start catching up. And that's what happened to us. So um, we thought we were great and untouchable, and then uh, Olympic qualification year, two thousand seven, suddenly. Um, the rest of the world wakes up, they get some funding in from their governing bodies and lo and behold there's real talent working hard, very determined and we were the guys to be knocked off the top spot. Um, so that's that's a lesson you need to learn as well and, and ideally you should learn it from other people but um, it's human nature that it's very difficult to do that and it's much easier to learn the lessons when they happen to you, unfortunately. But uh, that's how it goes. So 2007, we weren't firing on all cylinders we had um, a few problems in the crew. Uh, we we weren't um, at full health, um, uh, and we but we lost fair and square. You know, we came fourth, and that was a very bitter pill to 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 cross the line, the finish line, and then row back to the boating area rather than rowing to the the medal pontoon. That's the first time I'd done that, and I was, and I thought, hang on, what what's this? We just rowing to the boating area, de-rigging and going home. Um, that's a lot less fun than picking up a medal. And um, uh, yeah, it's a, a lesson that at the world champs level, certainly I, I only did that once and, um, and I'm pleased about that. That's, that's hard. It's, it's bitter and, and it's important that people coming into sport know just how brutal and ruthless and hard sport can be. It doesn't owe anyone anything. It doesn't care. Um, and you, you've got to work hard for everything you get. And complacency is really the enemy. Yeah. And then, so Pete, moving forward, you get into the, the 2008 year. And even that season was quite a roller coaster leading up to the games. But you guys did, you did get to Beijing. And in one of the, one of the more exciting races that are in Olympic finals, you guys came from behind to just pass Australia and win the gold medal. And when Lawrence and I were, you know, doing a bit of research, we found this interview with you and um, and your crew, and I, you you were referencing the race, and you said that at one point you thought that you couldn't do it, and then you punished yourself and pulled even harder. <laughs> we would just love yeah. to know about the experience of the race and what it was like, you know, going from behind and, and pulling through a win. Well, yeah, um, 
That was, that's an absolutely true comment as well. So I, uh, my first Olympics, and and I, I thought it was just it was great to be there. It was great to have the kit. It was we didn't go in as favourites because because of the turmoil we'd had through the year. We we missed TJ for a um, to an injury for a couple of races and had Tom Lucy in and we lost some. We won some and then uh, yeah came to Beijing really up for the fight, really ready. Um, I, oh, I, I just had my first injury. I mean, it's not common known, but I, I was doing power cleans in um, in Silveretta in 2008, and uh, something went in my back, and I had to be flown down the mountain. That's maybe four weeks before the Olympics, flown back down the mountain and back home on the bike for a few days with a sub in my seat. They, they were hard times. Enough, it wasn't easy even going to the Olympics. Um, and then... Uh, the race that's exactly how it felt the day I was really relying on Steve Williams as the voice of experience and real rationale um, guiding me through that that first Olympic Games and uh, he said because remember his experience was 2004 in the Coxless Four with that side by side with Canada Um, and he was saying this is going to be the hardest test we've ever had and if we're down by a canvas 500 meters to go that's a really bad position to be in so we need to front load this race and, and get started and I think we're in fourth place at halfway uh, with a length of clear water down behind Australia um, Slovenia was ahead of us it was I mean just ridiculous how bad the position we were in was and um, yeah that w- that was the time where self-doubt creeps in and, and really it was one stroke I thought okay silver's still good or um uh, and then just thought, what am I thinking? We we sat around a table and explicitly said at the start of the Olympiad and in Silveretta and the day before and in the warm-up that we would always go for gold. And that thought crept into my head. And I just uh, I, I felt like I'd betrayed the crew and betrayed myself just letting that creep in. Um, and that, uh, you know... It, it, of course it wasn't me it was a, a team effort but um, I imagine the other guys are feeling about the same um, I imagine that the other crews ahead of us had gone off a bit hard as well so there was a bit of them slowing down a bit of us of us speeding up but that's a real crowd pleaser if anyone hasn't seen the Coxless 4 final in 2008 um, it's one to watch uh, and you yeah. know that's, that's taking the bull by the horns in that last 250 there yeah, it's really such a an awesome race to watch, and uh, there we'll put the link in the in the show notes so people can uh, go I find think, it and uh, go give it a watch because really, really I cool. I haven't seen that for hours now, so I'll, I'll click on that link. <laughs> oh. um, and then moving on from uh, from that success, uh, uh, you and Hodge went into the into the pair for a couple of years. Talk about why why that transition happened and those those first few years in the pair. Um. I think we just wanted to try it out, just something fresh. So we we'd won all of the final trials. Um, I don't think any people won't mind me saying we'd won them comprehensively in that first Olympiad. Um, and we we just wanted to see how fast we could be. So when you win trials, uh, you get the option of what you want to do, and Jurgen might support it or not, but you still get to decide. So we wanted to go out in the pair and see see what we could do, and. and um, actually thought that would be a lot easier than it turned out to be so, <laughs> so uh, our final trials in in 2009 um, against the rest of the team and see how fair and 
that year, Hodge and I were 3% faster than the next fastest boat. And we just thought, I mean, we were flying and very, very good, very fast. Things seemed very easy. And we just thought, right, we're on to a winner here. Um, Jürgen was even saying, don't do too much too soon. You know, you've got to build up to something later on in the season. Um, we'd heard rumours that um, Hamish and Eric were putting a pair together. Uh, and we knew their names because they'd won in the four in 2007. So they'd already got our scalps from then. Um, and they were in the four in Beijing as well, which had gone badly for them. But we just had, we backed ourselves, basically. And our first uh, our first World Cup was a, a gold medal in Banyoles that year. And then in Munich, we we faced Eric and, and Hamish for the first time. And uh, we, we got an early lead. We got a lesson through the thousand. And I, I've never been in so much pain Um Finishing behind those guys in Munich, it was just, just tough, tough racing, um, and that we didn't know at the time, but that was just going to set things to how they were going to be for the next three years, and that we we learned some very tough lessons there. Um, and actually, Hodge and I, we didn't ever feel beaten, we didn't ever lose our heads. Um, we tried different things, most of which didn't work. Um, we we worked so hard and no doubt got better for it. So we always moved on um, ahead of third place, always pushing those distances, but never catching those guys. And um, you know you do that for a few years, uh, and you get better, and you develop resilience and develop certain skills, but never picking up a, a gold medal. Um, that, that's tough uh, and makes you think twice about what you want to do for the Olympic Games. Yeah, I'm sure. And I mean, that's that those few years, I mean, that those were awesome battles in the pair. I mean, I remember every every regatta the pair was was the the race to watch because the the battle between you guys and the Kiwis was always so close and so epic. So really, really awesome to watch. But I can imagine very tough to to have to to just never get that uh, that one step on them. So yeah. Oh, yeah. I never, I never saw them as unbeatable either. You know, amazing, amazing crew. But I never thought we're we're not going to beat these guys. I always thought that we could, and if we, if we found our day, um, that it was possible. But of course, we never did. Uh, and I'm not saying coulda, woulda, shoulda. Um, all credit to those guys. They were uh, and still are great guys, and, and were fantastic racers. And we had battles, and we had public support as well. I think people really wanted us to beat them. Um, and you know, I've had bad races in my life, but. Uh, Carapiro in 2010 in the pairs final that wasn't a bad race um, and that's that's one to Google as well if, if there's a link to that I'll click on that today because that's uh, <laughs> a race I haven't seen for years and years and it's um, it's a real belter yeah I know there's uh, it, those races are really really cool and I think the I think that was what was so cool is that every time you the, the at the start line people really thought it could go either way it was it wasn't any uh any doubt that that both these crews were were world class uh, performers? Yeah, that, that's a regret we never got to race a Coxler four. Uh, just put that together for a four's head or something like that with um, the Kiwi pair. That would have been great. Yeah, that would have that been would amazing. Be a, that would be a, a boat of titans, I think, <laughs> if the four of you guys yeah, race together. I'd love to be in there just just for fun, you know, just see what we could have done. Yeah, well, maybe maybe that can that can still happen. Um, <laughs> A brief comeback for Pete Reed. Uh, uh, never, never, never. Yeah. But uh, 
if I could rewind time, yeah, that would be something that would be fun to do. Yeah, of course. So, Pete, moving on, you get to 2012, and um, it was another actually interesting year because there were actually um, a couple crew changes, and again, you leading up to the Olympics, you guys lost to the Aussies earlier in the Third World Cup. Speak to us about you know the feeling of going to the olympic games in london it's your home ground and you know having quite another epic race and getting a gold gold medal uh right yeah um goodness me that it was a big big season um big change big turmoil in the in the british team because we had moved into the andy and i had strengthened the four um and that was a winning four as well so that's very hard decisions for jürgen um, and then we needed to start getting that right. Uh, oh, and we got the world's best time that year in Lucerne. Um, so we knew we knew we were quick, and training sometimes training was going badly, sometimes it was going really well. Um, and we again we knew it was going to be a two horse race. But Andy and I had had so many two horse race experiences over the previous three years that we were sort of up for a drag race and up to see what we could do and. Um, every time we just felt like we were racing the clock, you know, just get the most out of yourself. And uh, the home Olympics, uh, I, I would trade. I would trade the other two medals for that one. You know, that's really, really important to get that one right. And the pressure was just enormous because uh, Jurgen was so successful. We didn't want to break his unbeaten run, and the British public are expecting Team GB to be amazing. They're expecting rowers to perform. And that weight of expectation on you is huge because in the rowing world, everyone knew and we knew that it wasn't a, a gold medal certainty. I mean, the, the Australians were just too good to be thinking that way. So being ready in the days before leading up to that final, uh, the pressure was enormous. And I remember rationalizing it at the time with with Alex Gregory actually saying that we've earned the right to feel that much pressure and not many people in the world will ever ever get to feel pressure quite like that so we've earned it that's what we want we want if you if you're going to race and win at a home olympics there's going to be pressure and it's going to be hard and feeling that pressure is will get you ready for the race because you're going to be you're going to be ready to fight the adrenaline's going to be pumping and and that suddenly put me at real ease that right this is exactly what I want um, and everything went well you know we had some battle paddles against Australia in the warm uh, not the warm up for the race but in training that week um, we knew they were quick they, oh, do you remember they did all the talking as well there was all sorts of stuff in the press uh, about how quick they were going in training they they we heard that they did a, a one fourteen for five hundred meters in their four uh, we heard that on training camp and Jürgen went no way no way did they uh, so we don't know maybe they did do 114 but we never did um, anyway the, the race was just something I'll, I'll never forget we, we were sitting on the start line and you know when the, the camera's on us because we heard the crowd from 2000 metres away down the lake we heard the roar from behind us when we're sitting there almost under starters orders and that lifts you you know we heard the crowd from really loud from a thousand meters and then just building so loud that we couldn't hear the boat anymore and in that race we were 
side by side with Australia, but just slowly moving away. They didn't have any answers. It was a clean race. It was very fair, uh, and just a huge performance. It was that's a great Costas Four race. Just very clinical. Not not a crowd pleaser. Not toing and throwing, but um, very very good. Um, really take it on race. Yeah, um, one to remember for sure. Yeah, it really, it was such a cool race. I was actually in the in the grandstands for that race because I was there. Oh, um, wow. I was there wow, watching. Thanks for shouts. That was enormous. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was really cool to see. I think especially because the British crew is up and just having such a class performance, and the the spectators were going absolutely crazy. That last, uh, even the last four hundred meters, you guys probably couldn't even hear the calls in the boat. Um, but yeah, really, really I cool. Doing, I was doing the calls, um, <laughs> and I, I said three words through the whole race. Uh, what it was a go, then a wait, and then a go. And <laughs> I really had to just shout it as loud as I could. It was it was phenomenally loud, um, and it was my job to have a quick look and see where we are and, and do what what we needed to. But if you my my two Olympic experiences up until then. Um, that was as loud and as big and as bold and as British as it gets. And the previous one in Beijing, we raced at uh, half past five in the late afternoon, and there was hardly anyone there. So this was this was brand new to me. Um, uh, yeah, very very exciting time. Yeah, I mean, we also obviously uh, we've we've spoken a lot to the our lightweight four that won gold there, and they also said that the just the venue and the spectators were beyond anything that they'd experienced or even come close to before in a rowing race and again um, Matt Britton who was making the calls in the fall also no one really heard him at the end of the race they they just went straight off feeling and they've had the experience rowing together to know when to go and 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 what the rest of the crew is doing but yeah I, I can imagine that just the feeling must have been absolutely phenomenal yeah truly um uh, you go off feel and you go off instinct as well and we've done enough races enough pieces and we've spent enough time together to know exactly what to do you know I, I didn't even need to say those three words um, you, you you could just do it on feel and that's absolutely right from those guys um, yeah some fantastic racing and I'm, I, what I was pleased to see was the crowd were they weren't just up for British crews and they weren't just up for races with a British crew in it was just monstrous for every single race um, yeah I think the the Brits we we love sports but I don't think we like to travel so much the the masses don't or certainly won't travel for rowing to go over to various places but when it's at Eton Dorney and on their doorstep and it's a home Olympics I mean everybody turned up and uh, put on a good show and and supported sports you know not, not just us yeah, um, I just want to go back and touch on the on the world record that you guys set in Lucerne that year. So that's uh, it's five thirty seven, and just talk us yeah. a bit through through that race. Did you guys get on the water knowing that you could uh, you could have a crack at the world record, or did it just uh, sort of come through as you guys came down the track? No, it just it just came through. So um, training had been going well, um, but we and actually we. It was very warm weather, and it was a nice tailwind. Um, not monstrous, but the, the conditions were good. Clearly, they were good. And we were the first record of the day, actually. And uh, we were... It felt like good rowing. Of course, it felt like good rowing. But we were 
um, quite a way up at halfway and carried on moving through the third 500. Uh, Alex Gregory was doing the calls that day and we were a long way up in the last 500. And I was thinking to myself, it's, it's warm and there's a tailwind and that's a good bunch of athletes behind us and we're a long way up. Um, and Alex called, stay here. And then I've never done this before to talk over someone doing the calls, but I called a go <laughs> just because I thought, I, I, didn't, I didn't think we were on for a, a record, but I thought I don't, it's going to be a fast time. So then we sprinted in the last 250 as well. Um, uh, yeah, it, a few people have asked me about that. Did it feel like, was it extra fast? No, it didn't feel extra fast. It wasn't, um, it didn't feel super special. I just realized that we were a long way up on a very talented field. And um, yeah, that's a quick time. It'll, it'll take a bit of beating. Yeah, because I mean, I, I think there's only there's only two, you guys, and I'm not trying to think who else, but there's only two fours that have gone under uh, 640 before. So, and that's... Oh, is that right? Yeah, and that's yeah. quite a bit under... Was it another British crew? Was it um, uh, Constantine and I, Yes, and yes. Hodge and George Nash, maybe? I think so, because it's that, not something that happens very often, going under 640 in the four. No, um... Yeah, I think those guys did it, maybe in Amsterdam uh, in 2014. Yes. And then, because uh, we, we, we just had uh, Drugin on the on the show uh, previously, and he spoke yeah, about right. that day. They finished their race, and they I think they rode a 6.41, and they were like really chuffed uh, about how, how quick their race had gone. And then they saw you guys had posted that uh, 37, and I think they... They were just as nervous as when you heard the, um, that they'd rode a 115. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I listened to that interview. I, I'm a big fan of Drew. Um, yeah, he was one of the guys that I was reading about in papers when I was in that um, converted bike shed back in Bristol. I mean, one of the sport's true heroes. And, um, yeah, it's really interesting to hear their side of things, uh, what they were thinking all this time and um, what was going through their minds. Yeah, great. He's a good man. Yeah, really great insights uh, from him, especially about the the rowing technique and and how to how to get the best out of the boat. Yeah, he's always been good at that and always been good at sharing his opinion. Um, I think that's what separates really good athletes. Is uh, and and what Andy and I did well actually in the pair was we we constantly thought about how a boat moves and how we move and what our anatomies are like, what our strengths are, uh, and tried different things and tried different orders and uh, tried that Canadian lean back and tried a, a more sort of Russian sitting up tall, uh, lots of different sort of styles. And we, we tried to figure out what was best for us. I think um, you need to do that. Uh, whatever your sport is, you need to really uh, become a student of the sport, really think hard about it, really study it and, um, and test yourselves and learn. Yeah, you can't get like stuck in your ways because you know there's so Absolutely. many different ways. There's no right way, especially when it comes to to sport and 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 a sport like rowing. There, you've got to be testing the boundaries and getting yourself out your comfort comfort zone to find different areas that you can uh, squeeze some more speed out of. Absolutely, and Drew was a master of that. Um, you know, and always happy. And he he was a thinking man's rower. Yeah, which is I think uh, the sport needs many many more of those. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Okay, so um, Pete, moving on, we're going to chat a bit about the, your last Olympic cycle. So you guys won gold in the four, 
And then yeah. 20, 2013, um, it seems that GB put together um, the eight as their top boat. Um, chat to us a bit about you know the the process from moving from the four into the eight, um, and just a bit about what kind of things you had to change as a rower who had spent so much time in the four from changing into the eight. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, so firstly, I think Jürgen, we haven't discussed it um, explicitly, but I think what he was trying to do was uh, the four was going to remain as the top boat for that Olympiad, but I think he, he doesn't want to teach the rest of the world anything. If we're If we're on top from the Olympics and he knows he can put a good four together, if he did that in the first year back, everybody would know what the standard is and how to and what to do to catch up it it gives people a, a target so putting a top eight together just shake things up it, it makes things fresh it helps us learn um and all of a sudden so now i'm uh, one of the real seniors in the team and going into a new boat as well i'm learning and the dynamic changes uh the team di- dynamic really changes because an eight is an eight is like a wild party and with just the right amount of people to really have to concentrate hard on personalities and how they mix and, and their and strengths and weaknesses and how to get the most out of a bigger group where uh, a four is a nice happy medium and a pair is more like a marriage where you need to sort of figure things out between the two of you and it's very close, very intimate. Um, but the, the wolf pack, the party atmosphere of an eight just makes rowing so vibrant, so loud, so boisterous and enthusiastic. I mean, you really need to put your big boy pants on in eights <laughs> racing. Um, and those were very, that's how my, my Olympiad developed. It was eights in, in 13, 14, 15, and then 16 in the, in the Olympics. But, um, it felt like just a wild party the whole time. It was great. So and talk- I rode with I rode with so many different athletes in that Olympiad as well. Um, and I, I added it out recently because uh, of a comment someone had made since I retired. And I've I've raced and won with eighteen different athletes at Worlds um, and or Olympics. And most of those were in the last Olympiad. And it's just a privilege to to do that with so many different people. Um, yeah, I learned a lot about myself and and other people in that. Yeah, yeah, the eight is is always a very special boat. Um, talk to talk to us about the training in the eight. How did the? Because I mean, you spoke a bit about the complacency earlier when you guys were winning a lot. So talk about that. How do you keep the the mental edge on the whole time when the boat's moving quick and and it's not as uh, as clear in the eight with this with the, when there's so many people all uh, adding their their bits in. Mm, how do you keep a mental edge? Well, I think. Um, on paper, it looks like it was a straightforward Olympiad because we won all of those years. Um, but it was far from straightforward. I mean, that was the most complicated um, and most up and down the Olympiad I had. Uh, it just so happened that we won the finals and we won the big ones when it really counted. Um, so we kept a mental edge because we had to because we were we lost a lot of races. We underperformed in a, in a few. Um, Twenty. 13 and 2015 it was Jürgen's top boat but in 14 we were the second boat and in 16 we were the second boat as well so that everybody has their you, know, you come into the boat with 
your mental issues thinking maybe I'm not where I want to be or maybe there are some people in the boat that are delighted to be there um, but what keeps you fresh is losing races actually um, get, getting a, a silver or a bronze at some of those European championships and uh, and coming in falling a bit short in some of the World Cups it's um, it keeps it real it keeps it very honest um, and also we, we probably shouldn't discuss it too much but uh, telemetry on boats that keeps you very honest as well you see where your performances are you see if you're falling behind you see if you're rowing a bit short or a bit late or um, so it makes individual athletes accountable um, and that's why I think it's very useful in big boats because it's it's easy it's easy just to go out for a long row and go through the motions um, but you, you need to remember that every single person in the boat including the cops needs to put in their their full effort for every single session and that's when you get and that's the only way to get an eight moving um is if you can't do it with seven or seven and a half or 7.9 everybody needs to be giving their 10 out of 10 yeah um throughout other interviews we the the germans and the american women they say that they speak they spend a lot of time in the pairs just to keep that uh competition really strong in the in the, between their crew so that when they get in the eight they uh they're ready to to put it all out there yeah um i mean it's great advice we train in small boats a lot as well i think once once you're selected into the eight uh in april and may time um then it's pretty much eight racing from then on it might be at the odd session in a pair or an odd session in a four but then you get stuck in um and for us i think it's uh living by the stopwatch that keeps you fresh and really um holding people to account as well but having these honest conversations not it's not bullying it's not um it's not pressurizing or anything like that it's just very calm mature honest conversations that athletes have so well um with and and asking questions of yourself as well thinking okay why didn't i do this on that one i've, I've just finished the session i'm less fatigued than i was before why is that ask yourself the, the big questions um, things like how much do you want it? How much is, does this mean to you? Um, yeah, you need to be you need to be accountable. And I think the, the Germans um, and the American women's aides uh, they're the best examples of aides who have, have real longevity in history. You know, the, the Deutsche Achter, um, they're, they're well known. That's their boat. And the women's women's eight uh, from America is that probably the most successful. Uh, um, pro project like NPS, I'm sure it is. Yeah, uh, uh, so that's that's the standard on. Th I better turn my message off. You hear that <laughs> <thing>? <laughs> no worries, no worries. Um, yeah, I think that they they won for eleven years straight. The the American women's age. That's, so that's insane. They. Yeah, and, and the the competition in their crew is just was just crazy when we when we spoke to Emily from the their team. Yeah, massive. It, well, um, they they were their own biggest opposition, um, and that's a that's a good place to be. Yeah, yeah. and uh, Pete, I've just I would just love to ask, um, just from your your experiences from rowing against the Dutchland after leading up to the Olympics, especially in yeah. Rot in um, twenty fourteen and in twenty fifteen, those World Champs races were ridiculously tight. And it's, yeah. it's really important to note that in an eight, unlike smaller boats, 
changing your boat speed is very, very difficult once the race is starting. And to have yeah. those kind of close races um, were, you know, as, as someone that's so invested in rowing, to watch a race like that, it's like you can really appreciate the effort that and just the, you know, the, the sheer competitive spirit of the people racing because, I mean, those races must have been absolutely um, insane. Um, the eights, like nothing else, I, I think partly because it takes a, it's a minute quicker than the small boats, um, but it's, it's an absolute ruthless sprint from the start. Uh, so as hard as you can possibly go. And the beautiful thing about it, which I realized in these really great crews I was in, is if everybody does it, if everybody commits to sprinting faster than they think they can, then you can hold on, then you can do it. But if there's one person that that even doesn't think that they can do it, so just puts in a, um, a normal performance, then everybody fails. And it's when you get to the World Championships or Olympics, so the, the last race of the season, that's the only time for most for most nations, but certainly for us, it's the only time that you race when you're not fatigued so we don't really taper for any other racing you don't taper for training you don't taper for world cups and that means that when you get to the world championships you can do things that you don't think you can do your body can you your body can answer all the questions that your mind sends its way because suddenly you're fresh and you don't have that training load on you and um yeah the eight more than any other getting out getting off to a good start I mean a, a full what I thought was on start lines is I'm going to try and pull a sub 540 ergo here something I never did but I, I thought I'm going to do something that, I, that I've never done before and it's those races when you're fresh when everybody else is thinking the same thing you know someone like Paul Bennett going alright I'm going to pull a 535 let's, let's just do it and if everyone does it, everyone can do it. It's amazing. Um, and a, a testament to the team aspect of our sport. Yeah, and, and we, we spoke to Max Planer from the, the German 8, and he basically said it's like the the first 500 meters, you, you go literally max for the first 500 meters, and then you yeah. kind of you kind of figure out what you what you got left to deal with for the rest of the race. Yeah. Um, That's great. I'm... Um, and Max, he's a, he's a good guy, and, and that crew have got the record now from, from last year. Amazing stuff. But, um, yeah, I always admire the, the German mentality there as well. But that's how it is, especially in eights. It's, um, it's Max, and then see what you can do, and Max again, and, uh, and then see what you can do. Yeah. And it's always, it's when, you, when you're still at Max and you think, I'm at maximum here, and I can still go that way, then, then you know for certain that all of the other guys in your crew are pulling you along you're like you're just on the crest of a wave yeah of course and then uh pete's 2016 another very special year and i think you know watching the british aids progression throughout the seasons you know I, th I think it's really special for you guys just to showcase what um your system can do and and how much of an architect uh jürgen Krobler is because i dare to say that that was your most dominant race in the eight the whole year you guys had a quite a significant lead in the eight throughout the race, and it is for me just a, a a finisher to a really good Olympic cycle. Yeah, thanks very much. That was no no doubt our most dominant race, um, and 
I, I mean, I, a, an eighth final at the Olympics hasn't been dominated like that for years, um, in, in the men's side anyway. Um, that, that was huge. And a nice, a nice anecdote that nobody knows is we after we finished that, we picked up our medals and we all jumped in the minibus back to the hotel. And Will Satch turned to the crew and said, who backed off in the last 250 metres because they knew we had won? And everybody else put their hands up and I looked around and thought, what on earth? I was broken. I just wanted more in that race and wanted to carry on. But the reality is, if you look at look back, if you're a length up in the eight, a thousand meters gone, firstly, that doesn't really ever happen. Um, and But no one comes back from that. Not not in an eight. Um, it's just the boat's too heavy. Momentum is too important. We, we were rowing well. It didn't feel like we'd gone crazy and pushed too hard. It was just... Um, I think we were underestimated as a crew um, and you looked at individual names down our boat and some of them would be names that you hadn't heard of before uh, like Matt Gottrell or Scott Durant or maybe Paul Bennett um, but that doesn't mean that they weren't absolutely world class athletes I mean absolute top 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 quality in every respect um, and we've got eight guys filling the boat me and Hodgie in the middle Matt Langridge who's probably the biggest talent to come through GB rowing who and it hadn't come to fruition for him but it doesn't mean he wasn't an outstanding oarsman and then Sachi stroking he's he's 10 out of 10 when he's at his best just a, a monstrous performance and I think we were just a bit underestimated and we knew that we were good and and it's one of those races where you know everybody's just gone right let's see what we can do let's see see how fresh we are and um I love that race that's my favorite race of, of the whole lot, the whole career, um, with Oxford in there as well. That's the best race and a, and a decent place to finish. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's always important to, to be able to put your best race out first and then let the result take care of it because when you're on the top of the game, then if you you know that if you can put your, if your crew can put your be- the best race out, the, the result's going to be there. Yeah, well, the result, uh, and even... If you're beaten, I think um, Andy and I put our best race together um, in Carapiro, and it was it was absolutely everything, and we got beaten. You can live with that. That's if that's our result. Okay, I'll, for the rest of I'll sleep easy in a shot. Um, yeah, yeah, so you, you've got to just work hard in training, and then give your best on the day. For sure, it's, that's that's where that's where the magic is. So then. Uh, we're going to just go into a bit of the your training philosophy and and how you think about rowing a little bit. So, if you were to do a TED talk on a single aspect of rowing, uh, which aspect would you would you choose to talk about? Oh, that's a good question. Um, pr- uh, probably psychology and specifically um, how how you handle defeat, your mindset after being beaten. I'd probably do that. Um, and and mindset leading into a big race. You know, I, I wasn't the best at anything um, in sport. I tried to make my weaknesses very good, but I, f- I felt I was very grounded and very level-headed leading into the big races. I could think clearly, um, and I think that was very valuable for me and my crews. Um, I, I'd do that. So the psychology aspect of performing. Yeah, and Pete, next uh, the next one we. We were interested to ask you what's something you could have told your younger self at the beginning of your career um, that you would if you could turn back time. 
probably say don't don't worry about making mistakes. Um, I, I've got a, a, a couple of regrets in in life and a couple of regrets in sport. Um, but I wouldn't warn I wouldn't warn my young self about them. I wouldn't say you know don't do this or don't do that. Make sure you keep your eyes open here because um, you know you learn through those mistakes. You learn. I, I think just what would I say? Enjoy it. Keep going. Um, have a good one. It'll be okay. Uh, yeah, I, I, that's that's probably it. It's not not, not the most inspiring <laughs> advice in the world, but but just um, it's all right to make mistakes, and it's all right to as long as you learn from them. Um, that's what I do. Yeah, of the, course. The one, the one regret I have, and I've got to say it right uh, in 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 rowing in sport, the big one. Uh, Back in 2005, when I was selected into the Coxless Four, um, my my blue boat. So, I have no idea how to turn that message off. By the way, no, so don't worry. Don't worry. That's real life. Uh, so back in 2005, we got selected into the four, and our old blue boat was racing the Grand at Henley, and uh, they got beaten by Germany on the Saturday. And but only by a tiny margin, and uh, Germany went on to smash it in the final. And I'm sure with me and Andy, and we would have uh, won the grand in that. I mean, coulda, woulda, shoulda. But uh, the blue boat that we put together that for that boat race, going on to win the grand that year, would have just been uh, enormous. And that was possible. But the two of us were then locked into Jurgen's system. We were in the Coxless Four. We won the Stewards that year. Um, but I wish I'd go back to my young self and say. For God's sake, you won't ever be able to do this again. Race the Grand in the in the Oxford Blue Boat. Just do that one one year, your last year. That's what I'd say. Yeah, and uh, so Pete, I mean, we can't we can't have an interview with you and not talk about your athlete advice from 2018. I mean, it's it's actually been great for both of us just following each post. Um, so I, I wanted to ask I wanted to ask you what is your favourite athlete advice from 2018. Oh goodness me! Thanks so much for mentioning that, by the way, and and it has been really well received. Um, and and just an idea, I just I just wanted to try and help and give back. I've got my phone open now, and I've kept the the different advice each day um, in, in a diary. It might come in useful later. Uh, I can't remember the day exactly, but there was one about enjoying it and having a good time, and it was a photograph of uh, Hodgie and Alex. Um, Gregory laughing on the sofa together. Uh, it was in South South Africa, but I think that's a really, really important one about enjoying your time and enjoying like being able to laugh and uh, and having a good time with the people that you're with because they'll be your brothers and and sisters coming through the system and, and afterwards as well. And you can't you can't grind your way. There's so much grinding anyway, but you can't just only grind if you don't enjoy it. You you'll fail and fall. Um, so enjoying it is probably the most crucial thing. And if you can't you don't enjoy it, what's the point in doing anything? You know, that rowing, you're not going to earn loads of money. You're not going to become a household name. You you can only do it for uh, to test yourself and to have fun and to whilst it lasts, have a good time. Um, I think that's really really important. Yeah, um, and, I'll, and I'll keep going. It's, it's a long <laughs> year. There are a few more subjects to cover and a few areas to cover. So I hope a few more useful things come out. Um, and I'll, I'll no doubt get help from uh, people all over to to contribute to it as well. Um, but yeah, some some really important ones about 
uh, handling defeat. Um, but that that's what I'd choose. Every yeah. time. No, you your your athlete advice is awesome. Actually, a lot of your your social media stuff is is really cool. I, I've enjoyed following following your stuff for for a number of years. Yeah, I mean even yeah, that thanks. even that push up challenge that you did a couple of years back was was awesome to to yeah, <laughs> to and watch. That, that challenge and then uh, a 2015 challenge and what did I do? Last, oh yeah, last year was more of a sort of mindful exercises stuff. Just just being aware. And then, um, yeah, this year is a bit more giving back. So me, me just putting stuff on a plate for people to take or leave. Yeah. Um, and I've had recently had an idea for something I can do next year as well, which might be of some use. And my social media, I tend to just keep it to my my public self, my rower self, so I don't put private stuff on there. I don't, I don't really feel the need to tell everybody what I'm having for breakfast every day. Um, but if there's something I can do to help some young rowers, then very happy to do that i think that's an, an important part of um giving back especially now that i've retired I, I didn't expect to be retiring from rowing at the start of this year so that was that athlete advice is an honest project from someone that's uh still in the mix but um yeah now it's a little bit different we're gonna uh turn uh, turn the corner we're gonna go into our quick fire questions so great, okay. um, so I'm sure you you as you said you've listened to the other shows so um, I'm sure you've heard them before but the first one is if you could race any boat class at the games uh, which which boat would you choose? Uh, the pair. I've never done that. Any boat class, I'd do the single. If I was competitive and good, I'd do the single. But uh, yeah, uh, but I'm a rubbish scholar. Everyone knows that. So the pair. <laughs> Let, let's say that one. Yeah, yeah, it's you know the funny thing is Drew said he would, he would he would race in the umpire's launch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a legend. But okay, uh, now, I'll take the TV camera. Yeah, yeah the the single is I would I think I would enjoy racing the single, but I'm not sure if I could uh, do that training that amount of training by myself. I think that would be yeah, quite tricky. It takes a special person. Um, but you just asked me about racing the Olympic final. I'd take that. Yes. Uh, if, I, if I didn't have to do all the training. Yeah, you could just rock up. Boys, all of the has-beens. We'd all love to race the Olympics again. But uh, you want to get me up at 5.30 to go and do Jürgen's program? No, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> of course. So, Pete, the next one, and we touched on it a bit earlier. If you could choose any three people from any time in any country to row or race in a coxless four, which would your three crewmates be? Oh, Christ. Uh, Hodge, TJ, and Gregors from, from London. That's such a boring answer. Uh, I, I'm inspired by all sorts of people. I'd like to race with Frieda Svensson, actually. Um, I, I know that she's not a heavyweight man, um, but I, I really admired her tenacity uh, throughout her road career. We were always close friends, and just she wasn't the biggest uh, single sculler on the circuit, but she won in 2010 uh, at that that takes something special. Um, I'd love to have raced with Steve Redgrave just to see what all the fuss is about. Um, uh, and I think it would have been a dramatic eye-opener. So that's that's two. Um, I'll tell you what, I, I'll put Max Planner in there because he chose me to race in a Coxless 4. Um, <laughs> so Max as well, just out of, just a high five. Uh, that's a project. Done. So me, Max, Frida and Stevie Redgrave. Um, let's put that one together. Very cool answer. Yeah, because uh, Frida actually trained a lot uh, with the South African team. She would come on training camp. She, yeah, she's awesome. She's and she awesome. really was. I learned a lot from uh, watching how she trained and how she uh, 
how she executed her her performances. Really, really awesome athlete. High five, Frida. <laughs> Um, then what is your favorite rowing race that you find yourself watching over and over again? And it doesn't have to be one of your races. You know, I, oh, um, I, I'd probably watch my Olympic final from Rio over and over again. Um, that, that's special. And, um, the men's Coxless four final from 2004, uh, that was that's a special race uh, with Canada and Great Britain doing that toing and throwing, and then the men's eight in two thousand uh, in Sydney. That, that's an enormous race as well. Uh, those those three. Okay. Oh, good. Yeah. There's a there's a, a YouTube video with um, Matthew Pinson and the crew. Actually, they comment as the race uh, goes down. I think they did it for a TV show or something. It's really really cool to to watch the race and and hear how how they were going in the race it's a it's quite yeah. a cool thing that they put together yeah that's awesome isn't it? yeah and and uh pete next next question we're gonna maybe put you in a little bit of the hot seat but we we always have great discussions around this one if you were in charge at world rowing what would you change um i would probably uh, this is this is brutal and everyone's gonna kill me um but i would at least look at two different distances so keep the 2k keep it very pure uh, reduce the boat classes to um, one big boat and one small boat uh, for men and women and then bring in sprint racing so maybe even less than 500 meters um, but unfortunately that means losing the Coxless 4 so I'd have probably or at least look at an, an 8 and a pair for 2k and a single and a quad for 2k men's and women and then look at something like um just singles and pairs for uh 250 meters and and make it two different distances so big physiology uh, changes big training program changes but um something that i think the sport really needs is it needs some world stars so so some people, some individuals for the public to relate to, to bring people into the sport. So if you don't like football, you still know who Lionel Messi is and you still know who Cristiano Ronaldo is and you still know Pele. Um, and not enough people even know about rowing. It's such a wonderful sport. And whatever you think about it at the moment, for, for rowing to survive, it needs to have corporate backing. Uh, it needs to have... Uh, public appreciation and needs to have fans coming in and paying for tickets that's the only way it's going to have corporate backing and if if a sport isn't growing then it's dying and the, our sport is too good it's too good to die um, so we need to make radical changes and okay there, uh, there there are lots of different ways we can do that um, but having having promoting some stars, which you can only get in small boats. So everyone knows um, the Kiwi pair uh, and individual names. But as soon as you have an eight, you don't know the names of the people in the boat, which makes it very difficult for the public who don't know about rowing to relate to. And yeah, we need to make it relatable. We need to make it gritty, real. Uh, we need to open the doors at Caversham so that people can see what's going on um, and really relate to the sport. Because you can't, you can't if you haven't ever done it. You can't watch a rowing race and think, um, I'll have a go at that, because people think it's elitist and exclusive, and it isn't. Um, so, yeah, 
I've talked a, a lot, lot there, but clearly passionate about it, as so many of the listeners will be. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are people at FISA having a good hard think about how we're going to grow the sport. Yeah, that's a that's a really uh, well thought out answer. So good job. Um, the next one, we're going to open the book of secrets and ask you what is your 2K PB on the on the Ogo. Uh, 546.0 which it, it's not actually that devastating and I um, and and the whole British team I, we don't ever train for a, a 2k ergo and I don't ever feel like we tape before it either um, that 546 was back in 2006 a long time ago um, and when I'm fit I was always around like 548 549 kind of guy if I if I'm about there then I know I'm in decent shape, um, but I never want. I never got close to some of these real big boys, the sub five forties. Yeah, that's that's beyond me. Yeah, but it is. It's a it's a it's a common theme actually amongst the, a lot of the rows is that the the ergo is not the, you know, it's a training tool and it's a it's a selection tool for the coaches. So it's it's irrelevant really. A bit unlike your your boat whole speed. your whole boat speed and your yeah. world standing. So it's it's more about the whole team doing the the trials. And uh, and seeing where you are within the team, so as you say, there's no taper, there's no uh, focus on on pulling the ergo as fast as possible. Exactly. So if everyone's if everyone in the team has done the same training and is equally fatigued, it doesn't matter how fatigued you are. Jurgen just needs a, or the whoever the coach is just needs a, a go on one day and see where people are relative to one another. So yeah, just for selection. Um, but anyway, I'm. It's a decent score. I'm fairly proud of it. I was always quite friendly with the machine, you know, good over long distances and, and did some good stuff and had some bad ones as well. Um, yeah, it's a it's a good test. It's a mental test, more than a physical test, I'd say, the rowing machine. Yeah, just uh, on your on your physiology, uh, I heard a while back that uh, you have a ridiculous uh, VO2 max. Do you, do you want to tell us a bit about that? I don't even know what it is. My, my lung capacity is off the charts. Oh, yeah. The, the biggest test I got was eleven point six eight liters. Oh man, um, that's enormous. So that that that's legit and, and big. Um, but I've grown up with big lungs. I, I think actually the airways are quite small, so I I um, get asthma, exercise induced asthma, and a bit of hay fever. So the airways can close up. So it doesn't matter how big the bags are. Uh, if you can't suck in enough air, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, I know. I think uh, I'm getting confused. It was your your lung capacity that I'd heard about. That was that yeah, is well, some outrageous well, set of lungs you got. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a big set. But I, I mean, I th- I think the like you touched on it earlier. I think also from the um from the two, from your ergo time. I think what's the most important uh, part of rowing and just being an athlete is being able to apply what you have already, rather than worry too much about your limits of your physiology because at the end of the day the rowing stroke there's a hell of a lot more that goes into your rowing stroke besides raw power um right well said yeah so last last question pete if you had to choose a different sport to go to the olympics in what would it be and why it would be anything that isn't powered by my body um (laughs) that's a hard that's a hard that you filtered quite a lot of sports there (laughs) yeah um any other can I have a winter Olympic sport yeah of course um, okay so I know it's powered by a body but bobsleigh I think that would be really really good I'm not I'm not the world's fastest sprinter but if I could just magic myself to being a, a very sprinter 
um, and preparing for that, I think that would be um, exhilarating, the, the precision. So I, I put myself in the driving seat, um, but to the ability to um, to have your short run, but be so precise, to have to think everything through, to be very calm under pressure, have that explosive start, and then um, the the mental presence to calm yourself down and take every corner perfectly um, when it's separated by thousands of seconds. I think that would be fascinating. Yeah. It's... Um, yeah. And, and just a, a massive adrenaline rush. That'd be cool. Yeah. yeah that's a good answer. And yeah, it's also, can... I mean, as a, as a South African, the winter Olympics are amazing to watch because of the lack of cold weather here. <laughs> you should be not exposed yeah. to any of these sports in a, in any kind of way on a day to day basis. So, yeah, that was a really good answer. All right, thanks, Jack. So, uh, just to wrap things up, do you, do you have any parting words for our listeners or anything else that you, you want to mention or talk about? Um, I, I want to say thank you very much for the support over the years. I, I always felt well supported by the world rowing community. Um, so, everyone who's out there and cheered for crews that I've been in or dropped me a, a message on social media that's what it's good for uh, people can get in touch and just say um well done or good luck and that's always really nice uh, and i just don't don't think that i'm anything special or hodgie's anything special or any of these guys we're not superhumans. we're just we went through comprehensive schools and um we, we just trained hard and worked hard and rode with good people but there's nothing special about us so don't think that you can't do it as well if there's someone who's um maybe 16 or 17 and finding the sport um i started when i was 20 i know andy started a bit later on as well um yeah there's no reason why you can't do it too but just be ready for it to be a massive fight and i had as many downs as i had ups i just had ups at the right time so uh if you lose something or get beaten or feeling a bit dejected or a bit lost that's all part of it, um, and it's a wonderful sport. And I know I'm preaching to converted here. A lot of your listeners will be rowers, um, but yeah, just just enjoy it, thrive, and and help other people where you can. Of course, that, that's my piece. Yeah, my soapbox. Yeah, thanks. That's that's an epic answer. And I think Pete, just um, from both of us, I think it's uh, it's necessary to just say congratulations on one hell of an exceptional rowing career. It's been a joy and a privilege to watch um, you go throughout the years. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's been, it's been lovely to talk to you. I've had a, a great time. I've really enjoyed it. Even the, the hard times, I've, I've enjoyed every part of it. And I will stay close to the sport. You won't see me on a start line anymore, but uh, I'll always be close and, and have very, very fond memories. And I'm very grateful for the people I've met and, and become very close to. So thank you very much. And a great interview. Oh, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. And thanks so much for coming on the show with us. We'll talk soon. All right, course. Lawrence, Jack. Take care. Take care, guys. All right, sweet. Cool. Cheers, Cheers, Pete. Bye, bye now. Bye. Bye. That's a wrap for our epic chat with uh, Pete Reed. I really hope you guys enjoyed it and uh, it lived up to, to all your expectations. It sure kept us on the edge of our seats when, when we were recording this thing. Yeah, and just a reminder, next week we're going to go into depth of the first World Cup this weekend and just look at the performances in a bit more detail and see what this means for the season going forward. Yeah, and once again, share the show, uh, let your mates know about it. Also drop us a message. Uh, Instagram is probably the best at The Row Show, um, but you can email us at therowshowsa at gmail.com 
and yeah keep hitting us up with with your comments questions it's really cool to to have some uh some response from you guys so just keep uh, keep letting us know yes and then, and go review us on itunes please it actually makes a huge difference um so please go just go uh spend a little bit of time doing that for us but besides that have a good weekend yeah. and goodbye Cops, dude. Yeah, I know. They're good. We're getting fucking good at this thing, bro.